Good evening, everyone. Changing the order of things a little bit, starting with sports matters this evening. Kind of breaking from the last uh, few weeks, but what the hell, it's our show, we can do that. This is Sports Matters, November 5th, 2013. Hi, I'm Brian Wilmer, joined by Ed Barnes, and uh, numerous technical difficulties on the live side, but that's okay, because the program's running, and eh, screw the rest. Well, that's really what's important, right, Brian? I mean, as long as you've managed to scrub your timeline of any potentially racist and uh, incriminating tweets you've sent to a teammate, <laughs> technology is working for you. And that's really, really what we're all about here. Yeah, uh, no taking a dump on anybody's chest tonight, so no worries about Ow. that. <laughs> yeah, I tried to dance a little around it. You just went, you wrote right for it. I respect that. Well, I respect that. You know, I mean, you're, you're swinging a helmet at Richie Incognito. With your voice. Then again, uh, you kind of wonder if Richie Incognito and that one girl from Not Another Teen Movie would be a good matchup. Man, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of things that we have to talk about when it comes to Richie Incognito. But, um, I mean, we, of course, have our general housekeeping first, like how we can reach the program or be reached, I should say, at the program would include. Uh, <laughs> at Sports Matters on Twitter. Also, radio at sportsmatters.info, the email address. Once again, radio at sportsmatters.info. Uh yeah, if you want to send hateful tweets toward me, at least, certainly feel free to do so. Uh, don't pick on Ed. He's he's too nice of a person. Very sensitive. Uh, <laughs> before we do get started, though, on uh, – and obviously we are going to talk Richie Incognito. Sure. And then we also later have a, an interesting article uh, by Jeff Perlman talking about that he doesn't want his kids to play team sports – because of the emphasis on winning and how it can ruin some kids who may not be very good at sports but still want to play. But that's all for us to get into a little later. I did want to start with something of a little bit of a personal note for me. Uh, over the weekend, and it is Sports Matters, so this is where I should talk about this, my brother completed the New York Marathon in three hours and 48 minutes. It was his first marathon, and I thought that was incredibly cool. Um, hearing about what it took in order for him to qualify for that, about a year ago he started doing actual races and posting all the necessary qualifying times and doing all the training and all of that. And it was pretty fun as here I am sitting in San Diego and on my phone, I'm checking an app every five minutes to see what his split times were like and how he was doing. And, uh, that was, I mean, congratulations to him. That's a pretty cool accomplishment because if I run about five miles, I'm pretty much just like the day's over for me. I think at that point, it's like a nap and, you know, like lots of food is in my future if I run five miles. So for him, uh, just, you know, broke off the 26.2 and did it in 348. So congratulations to him and uh, Bailey, his girlfriend. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations to him. And now you can buy him a new set of toenails for Christmas. Yeah, seriously. Um, seeing the stuff on Twitter the night before as, I, you know, he posted something about how he was getting excited. And I started looking at some of the stuff that was out there and people talking about how they give you special Band-Aids to cover your nipples. In the uh, <laughs> marathon pre-race kit, I believe, is what someone at least implied on a tweet. Maybe I, I misunderstood it or took it too literally, but still. Um, yeah, okay. That's that's the Andy Bernard gift, if you've ever seen the uh, the Office Fun Run episode. Man, you know, that's that's just a whole lot of commitment. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm I like to work out. I like to be physical and all of those things, but um, to the point where I'm you know, knowingly going to be messing up part of my body, even if it's in a, you know, it's not the most significant or visible way, but at the same time, like that, that's kind of crazy to me that you would want to run that far. Well, one thing I will say about this, and since you mentioned it, I'll go ahead and, and transition into this. Uh, Tina Servacio, who does the Knicks coverage for uh, MSG Network, you may be familiar with the name. 
Uh, mm-hmm. She actually tweeted out a picture the other day where she ran the marathon and then worked the Knicks game that night on the sidelines, and she's standing there with, like, shin sleeves on. And I'm just like, that right there is hardcore. I could never, ever in the world think of doing something like that. I really couldn't imagine it. I remember seeing a lot of post-race photos of people wrapping themselves in those, you know, in like the blankets and everything that you get at the end of the race. Because you're, you know, I mean, just the regular aftermath seems like enough for me. But to go out and work that night, I I really couldn't imagine. And um, honestly, that just really speaks to how good a shape she must be. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, she is one of the more, uh, to not get too sidetracked here, she's one of the more fit individuals you will ever see in a media room, on a sideline, in a press box, whatever else, and, and Lord knows there are enough of us that aren't, so congratulations to her as well. So, does she have more license to complain about it when the yogurt machine isn't working? <laughs> Get in line behind mud. Yeah. <laughs> the In, in uh, what was a great segue, now turning into a horrible segue, speaking of people who like to work out, let's, uh, let's talk about the Richie Incognito situation, because this is one of those things. It's been dominating the news all week. I don't. I don't want to get get into the same tired standard take about oh all this all this bullying stuff. I mean, we've we've heard all of it through the news all week. So I think you and I need to look at this in a little bit. What does it say ways. about Joe Philbin that he'd allow this in the workplace? Yeah, as as I said last night, it's good to see that uh, that the Dolphins and Joe Philbin have made Regis uh, only the second most out of touch Philbin in sports. Perfect. Well put. Yeah. That's uh, that's about the most I have to say about whole, that whole situation. Uh, the, the other complaint that I would have, why don't we have hard knocks showing this right now? I mean, forget ending it at, at the end of training camp. Continue to focus in on this. You could have a whole series. And you know the HBO people are sitting there right now going, damn it. If we had just left the cameras down there, we could have had the best season of television ever. Because that's how HBO works. Imagine they have, for Major League Baseball, they have that show, The Franchise. Right. Imagine if they had that <laughs> with the Dolphins right now. How would you handle that uh, if that's... you're the Dolphins? How would you handle that if you're producers? How would you – and if you're the NFL, you know that you'd be coming in and talking to all of those people and giving your two cents about how it needs to be handled. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, hey, uh, you must have some role on this. You mind sharing that with us? Yeah. And then that uh, creates a whole other series of issues. And then the next call is from Jonathan Martin's attorney going, hi, I heard you have some videotape." <laughs> yeah, speaking of, uh, of Jonathan Martin, by the way, there have been so many things that have gone on this week. And, I mean, we've we've heard comment from all sides. I even heard something earlier today from Offord, of all people. And we might get to that a little bit later. But Richie Incognito's former high school coach, I was telling you about this just before we, we made air. And I, I want to go over this because it is amazing what he says here. I cannot believe what he, he decided to uh, bust out to the press. He was talking about Jonathan Martin, and you know he coached him in high school. He's familiar with him, obviously. So, so this was Incognito's coach or Martin's coach? Martin's coach. Okay. And he said, "quote Bullies usually go after people like him." Unquote. His name is uh, Vic Umont. He's the high school coach at Harvard Westlake School in California. And he said, "With his background, he's a perfect target." And then he said, "quote Before he wasn't around Nebraska, LSU kind of guys. He's always been around Stanford, Duke, Rice kind of players." In locker rooms full of Nebraska, LSU, Southern Cal players, Miami players, they'll look at this as a weakness. If he makes it through all this, and if he was encouraged to come back, he'd come back with a vengeance, unquote. Uh, those those remarks really aren't helping, are they? Well, you know, I just am really glad that there are no wide-ranging stereotypes involved in his comments. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah. These guys are at high, really well-known football schools as opposed to Stanford, <laughs> so they must be really dumb and ignorant. Yeah, never mind the fact that Stanford's number five in the nation. Uh, nobody smart goes there. Oh, no, I, I, I more mean that, I mean, that's, uh, there's so many things wrong with those comments. I agree. And, uh, you know, what's great about it, though, is that he's the man that's shaping the minds of our youth, too, <laughs> in various ways. But the point is, really, is that it seems like everyone in their rush to give their opinion on this story has just, as you said, not been helping. No. It seems not like it's all. all been made worse. If it's not these comments by Jonathan Martin's high school coach, uh, Antro Roll's comments... I'd say would would be ones that would not be helping either. Uh, Ricky Williams, and we will have plenty of time to get to all these, of course, but Ricky Williams had some comments that seem a little strange considering his past about the whole situation. Sure. And it's just sort of been interesting to see people start to invoke the macho nature of football, um, you know, saying, hey, uh, if you're a football player, you shouldn't have put up with this in the first place because, you know, you're a man. And, um, you know, look, we don't know the entire situation. It looks terrible for Richie Incognito. That it does. I mean, there, there's really nothing other – I mean, definitively, there's not much we can say other than that. Uh, although the video of him uh, on his shirtless trip around a bar uh, cursing and screaming the N-word <laughs> is amazing. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. And by the way, since we do have a journalistic background, journalistic education, and journalistic integrity, har har – uh, we should at least say this. We should at least say that all of this is alleged. However, it looks awfully damning. The, I think it was Deadspin that had the tweets from Richie Incognito's Twitter timeline towards Jonathan Martin that were not the nicest things in the world. And they suggested just maybe that those tweets should have been deleted if you're Richie Incognito, but uh, a little late. The even worse thing, too, and I, I brought this up to you yesterday in passing, I think. Artrell Hawkins, the former Bengals defensive back, commented on how in the – actually, he might still be Bengals defensive back. I don't know. But he commented how in the, uh, in the program for Miami and Cincinnati on Halloween night, they asked players who was the easiest teammate to scare. They asked Incognito, and he responded by saying Jonathan Martin. <laughs> you didn't mention that. I didn't know who uh... – <laughs> who was the source on it, uh, as that's even more interesting because he reads the program. Yeah. But still, I mean, of all the places to say something like this, if you're trying to clear your name, this is not really the best way to do it. Just saying. Well, I mean, obviously this hadn't... Well, no, I guess it had come out. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, right. I think that so. Was the game where, yeah, that's the game where he had uh, <laughs> headed home. Wow, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's even worse, although you know that all that stuff was written down and went to print long ago. True, but still, it, just, it, it looks even worse. And then, of course, Inco Incognito's comments today, uh, Channel 7 in Miami met up with him and, and talked to him. He said, quote, you know what? I'm just trying to weather the storm right now. This will pass, unquote. And then the reporter asked him about the reports that he had left a voicemail on Martin's phone calling him the N-word and threatened to kill him and everything. And he said, quote, you know what? No comment right now. We're just going to kind of weather the storm, and that's it, unquote. Um, I've heard of people trying to, you know, minimize the damage on things, but this is basically the, you know, it's kind of like the Baghdad Bob of, of, uh, of sports interviews. <laughs> There's nothing to see here. Move along. I just, you know, hey, uh, Richie, have you heard of PR crisis management? <laughs> 
there are a lot of people out there, very capable people. There is kind of a game plan that you could follow if you wanted to try to minimize this damage. The simple, uh, no comment right now, we're just going to weather the storm, is probably not it. See, his PR dude didn't go to college. His PR dude listened to Jay-Z's 99 problems and figured he had all the answers on how to advise him. Man. <laughs> I think Richie Incognito is being managed by like this the same like Uncle Nate dude that uh, hooks up Johnny Manziel. What do you think? <laughs> and see, this is going to sound really bad when people listen back to this because they're going to think we're making light of it. And that's that's not the case at all. But this this is so... We're making, well, we're making light of Richie. I'm, well, I'm, sure. I'm making fun of Richie Incognito. Sure. This is Look, so really, absurd you, and so stupid. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I, I mean, if some of the stuff that he really said and did is true, then you deserve, like, jokes and scorn and all of the aforementioned. Um, I really do believe that. I mean, as far as the whole side about where Jonathan Martin lies and all this and where he should have been standing up for himself and so on and so forth, I mean, I think that you expect a little bit better from someone who is a teammate of yours, Um you know, that that's my first thought is I wouldn't expect anyone, you know, granted, I did not play professional sports, but, you know, sure, played plenty of team sports growing up. You deal with a lot of different people. And when you're on the same team, you try to make an effort to get along with people, I would think, because you're a team. You're all fighting for the same thing, pushing for the same goal, trying to win the game, all of those things. So I would think that if this guy is on your team you really wouldn't want to do something like that to him just because you'd think, hey, this guy's on my team. I want to be on the same side. I'd like to have a good relationship with this guy. There are so many deeper issues to this. And, and really, you know, we, we don't have the time to do all of them justice. So we'll, we'll do what we can with them. But I, I now also feel kind of bad because I was joking the other day about Incognito and how he wears shirts that are just tight enough and the sleeves go up just far enough to where they expose his tribal band tattoo. And now after seeing pictures of him, he has tribal band tattoos. So now I feel even worse for prejudging him on something that turned out to be right. Why do you feel bad about that? Well, because I it's mean, it's a stereotype, and I fell victim to it or something. Well, I you know, and this was an article that uh, I'll now need to go back and read it as I saw the headline. <laughs> no, no, I saw the headline, though, and I thought that was an interesting premise, and I didn't – you know, it wasn't a time where I had to read the article and I haven't gone back, where it talked about Richie Incognito, living stereotype. Uh, yeah, fair enough. And, you know – Let's talk about the, the stereotypical part of it, too, because there are some things that we haven't yet gotten to and some things that we need to go over a little more quickly than we ordinarily would. But some of the stuff I've seen from people where they say there, there was one person I saw on Twitter yesterday, and I won't call this person out, but they said that Jonathan Martin needed to, quote, nut up and grow a pair, unquote. Now, listen, let, let me just say this. I realize that there's a certain degree of toughness that's required of playing an NFL sport, you know, NFL game. I, I get that, but mm -hmm. saying that, and people tend to equate hazing with this too. They say, "Oh, hazing takes place in the NFL all the time. Hazing is hazing." Blah, blah, blah. Okay, hazing is one thing. Uh, you know, hazing is putting somebody's hand in a, in a bowl of warm water while they sleep and making them piss themselves, or you know, making them clean up the suite at the frat room or you know, frat house or something like that. That's hazing. Um, Making death threats to somebody and threatening to um, relieve yourself in their mouth, that's gone a little past hazing, I would think. I would agree that that's going past hazing. That just seems really messed up more than anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in situations where people have hazed before, uh, you know, baseball being one of them. I've, I've lived around fraternities where they kind of lightly hazed people. 
but it wasn't anywhere near to that degree. And for people to equate hazing with threatening to kill somebody is where we've really gone off the rails in America. And people are just like, oh, you know, you have to to grow a pair and blah, blah, blah. I, I want to, and I've, I've seen stories on this. There are a number of NFL players that, you know, that paint. Aaron Maben of the Bengals, formerly the Bengals was one of those. Uh, you know, he had his own line of, of artistry. There are people who play music and compose music. There are people who do all kinds of things. And they're not looked down upon, but Richie Incognito does what he does, allegedly. And Jonathan Martin comes out and stands up for himself. Now, all of a sudden, Jonathan Martin is a female, if you look at what most people say. Not that I not that I agree with this take at all, but I think that what these people who, you know, are banging out those tweets like the one you read a little bit ago are saying yeah. is that, no, he, he didn't really stand up for himself. He just went home. And that's the I think that that's the thing that a lot of people seem to have a problem with. Again, I don't agree with that assessment necessarily. You know, he say just it's like, oh, he just you know, he didn't actually stand up to him. He just left and just basically was he, he tattled. Yeah, but still, let's let's OK. I hate to make this comparison because it's really, you know, using the jumping conclusions, Matt, here. But let's let's break it out anyway. Let's just say. Somebody is a victim of domestic violence, and domestic violence is, is a scourge on our nation. I think we can both agree upon that. But if somebody is in a situation where they are being abused in their house, do you think less of them? Do you think they're soft or whatever if they leave the situation and call the police versus breaking out a gun or a knife or fighting the person? I mean, this this is what I don't understand about people. I understand that you want people to, you know, to stand up for themselves and everything, but isn't getting out of the situation and getting somebody involved who can help, isn't that standing up for yourself too? No, I, I, I agree with you. You don't have to convince me. Well, sure. I just, I just find it very amusing, um, you know, hearing someone like Ricky Williams, of all people, say uh, he probably needed to stand up for himself and, you know. It's going to be really tough for him now because he's just kind of a different person. Wait a second. Ricky Williams saying these things? Uh, yeah. You have, you, you have the actual comments in front of you, but uh, it, it, it was just kind of baffling seeing someone like that give an opinion that seems so out of touch. Yeah, he was saying something along the lines of uh, maybe he just shouldn't be in the NFL. And this is Ricky Williams who uh, we all know about his numerous uh, different pursuits throughout his career and – this is another thing, too, that, that upsets me because we're getting to the point now, and, and I don't want to go off on this whole preachy rant about culture and whatever else. I mean, that's that's for another show. But we have people now where we're encouraging a pack mentality where everybody has to be just like the meathead who's causing the problem instead of, you know, we all have different ways of resolving issues. We all have different ways of living our lives. We all have different values. And at what point did that become a problem? Why are, why are we so upset that somebody might handle confrontation a different way? And I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that he plays in the NFL. I just think he's a logical, reasonable person here, and people can't stand to see that he decided to take the logical way out of this instead of just, you know, slamming Incognito into a locker or something. And, and you know, if he did slam him into a locker, it probably, you know, stays in the news cycle for a day or so and then vanishes. This is call, calling attention to a bigger problem, and I, I fully encourage that. So... If you think about it, you could say that Jonathan Martin's approach to the situation was one that shows the more evolved way of thinking that we supposedly are trying to work toward right. as a society. Right. Completely yet agree. He's, yet he's being called out by people saying, oh, you know, maybe this game isn't for him. Well, wait a second. The, the, don't you see the flaw in the 
if you're gonna, if you can't, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make any sense. Okay, so let me see if I've got this right. We all need to evolve and be more tolerant when it comes to gay rights and abortion and uh, all these other things. But yet, when it comes to playing football, you know, playing the foosball. We can't have that. We can't have evolution in football. It's all about, you know, you have to be a brainless meathead who gets concussions and pounds people's in, people into lockers. Is, is that what I'm understanding here? Well, I mean, I think what we really know is that the entire game has – it just shows how it's not tough anymore once they started wearing pink. And uh, now this is just another <laughs> example about how everyone's soft – you know, football is not even football anymore. It's just touch. I mean, you know, I've read that several times. Just, you know, glorified touch football out there in the NFL. You know, you bring up a funny point, though. Why is it that we let an entire month go by and nobody made any mention of anything on the pink uniforms except for the fact that the NFL is not donating, donating the money from them? And, you know, they didn't call that soft or call that girly or anything. And now all of a sudden, J uh, Jonathan Martin, you know, gets bullied and, and that's what it is, really, and uh, and takes the adult way out. And now all of a sudden, that's the straw that broke the camel's back? I, I don't follow. I think his lack of breastuses might actually have more to do with it because apparently that's what it all comes back to. Is that's what we're saving here by wearing pink, right? I had not I mean, thought I'm about a, that. But. I'm just saying that I'm not. I'm very surprised the NFL hasn't like marched a cheerleader over to one of the handheld cameras on the sideline for a special pink breast cancer promo every game in that month. <laughs> Yeah. Do it now before they have to wear the parkas in Buffalo. <laughs> wow. Nicely played. <laughs> I, have to, I have to and give credit for that. That's ulterior notice. Yeah, that's uh, that's well done. But no, to uh not to, not to dwell on this because there there are other things we need to hit and and really like we said most of the the tired talking points have been covered by the uh, the mainstream media, but I think the thing that if I can sum it up for both of us and and if I'm speaking out of turn, please feel free to Correct me, but I think the thing that we don't get is this is the first time in a long while we've seen somebody in a professional sport act like an adult and act like a reasonable adult, and for doing so, he gets vilified. And and we're you know sure Incognito's getting his share, and, and people are tossing their share of hate his way. But the guy who does the sensible thing and the the logical thing is catching way more hell than he should. Yeah, well. You know, I didn't bother watching Around the Horn or PTI today because I never do, but I can only imagine how those shows went today. This person acted like a rational adult. Discuss. Wait a second. What? How do – how are we supposed to do that? I don't know. I don't know what acting like a rational adult's like. I'm used to just yelling and writing witty stuff on a chalkboard over my shoulder. Yeah, I was going to say Woody Page had uh, growing up is overrated on his on his chalkboard over his shoulder. Is that, is that what I missed? No tattling. Snitches you know, get stitches. <laughs> that's on Carmelo Anthony's chalkboard. Yeah. So I, I don't I, – I, I do find it interesting the reaction to it is, you know, there's still – as much as we like to say and think that we've changed as a culture and as a society, there are still plenty of things that are deep down in our roots that show themselves on a very regular basis. Um and show that how deep down some of our thinking is say one thing and then think another deep down. And this just sort of is another example of that, I think. I guess the other sports ball story that comes out of all this, if we have to find one, is with, with all this stuff happening on Joe Philbin's watch, does he survive the year? Man, that's um, 
That's a good question. I I think he probably will end up surviving the year, and then maybe at the end of the year they'll they'll come out as an organization and talk about how they're doing a thorough review of the culture of the Dolphins franchise, and then he could be whacked at that time as part of what we felt like we needed to go in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, true. I, no, I, I really, I mean, just thinking from a PR perspective and the way that, you know, the sport, the team is definitely trying to do everything it can to minimize damage. It's not just sitting there going, we're just going to weather out the storm and no comment at this time. I'm going to go back to my, you know, my large Bud Light that I just got at this bar that you found me at. I'm just <laughs> guessing. I don't know. It's my allegedly that I'm dropping in right there. But I think that that's how that could go down. I do uh, ch- kind of get a chuckle at thinking uh, that the Dolphins would want to bring in Greg Schiano once he gets fired by the Bucks because he could be a good disciplinary. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, is I think that Greg Schiano, and again, this is just my own take. Please do not take it seriously. But I think Greg Schiano would encourage Richie Incognito <laughs> more than he would encourage Jonathan Martin. <laughs> Speaking, by the way, of, uh, of Greg Schiano. Don't hit him. Oh, go hit him. They're <laughs> kneeling down. Free shot. That's right, Richie. You tell him you're going to kill him. You, yeah. Take your so, shirt off at that bar. You saying you learned well from Mike Rice? Is that what that is? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the thing about Schiano, too, and, and I'll, I'll go over this briefly because, again, we don't want to hover on this subject too long. But with Schiano in Tampa Bay, wouldn't it have been better for him long term? I mean, for him possibly keeping his job if Seattle beats them, say, 48 nothing. Instead of them having a twenty-one nothing lead and then to to get done the way they did, I mean that that looks even worse for him, don't you think? Yeah, geez, it's just it's it's all going wrong there. I mean, if it didn't start badly enough with the, you know, <laughs> the staff infections going through the facility <laughs> and what happened, to Carl Nix and Lawrence Tynes this year. Um, about the only thing I think that would be worse is if it were proven that Greg Schiano was the one that actually gave them the staff infection somehow. <laughs> and he like planted like, I don't like Lawrence Tides. Uh he used to play soccer or something. <laughs> giving him a staff infection. Damn kickers. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna get our pro goal guard out because that way if we win, I'm gonna be a better coach. Oh, that backfired. <laughs> Moving on kind of. Uh let's talk about this this story with Jeff Perlman where for those of you who aren't familiar, Jeff Perlman is a very uh respected yet polarizing writer. Within the business, he's he's the guy who did the uh, the John Rocker uh, profile long ago. He's he's a guy, and I, I have to say, I don't always agree with everything he says. In fact, there are a lot of times where I don't agree with anything he says. But he is very intelligent and very skilled, and and you have to uh, acknowledge that as as we uh, as we listen to some of this. He talked. I, I, well, about, the, go ahead. well, I was just going to say one thing about him though is just that he does have an opinion, and right. I do think he does a fairly good job about supporting his opinion without resorting to the same screaming, yelling kind of tactics um, that we've talked about so much. And again, whether or not you agree with him or his rationale, he usually he, he does have an opinion. Again, not always one that you know I agree with or you agree with, but it's always at least supported in a way that you can go, all right, well, I hear what you're saying. I may still disagree with it. And here's why I might disagree with that. And of course, you know, you're not really having the back and forth, but you might be thinking it in front of your computer while you're having your frosted flakes in the morning or whatever it might be. <laughs> frosted flakes are awesome. Yeah, they are. Uh, Jeff was talking about how he didn't want his kids to play youth team sports, and this was in the Wall Street Journal, so it's it's not exactly you know on uh, on Bob's blog or something. To to go back to an earlier reference, he said 
Way back in 1982, sorry, my uh, <laughs> all I was thinking was this article is down 10 points in the morning session <laughs> under heavy trading, you know, or something like that. The Wall Street Journal, could you imagine that on their website? They start rating their articles that way. What would be even funnier to me is flipping on the Wall Street Journal in the morning and seeing 26 stocks you need to buy immediately, and it's a 27-screen slideshow. I, w- I would pay for that. <laughs> uh, Wall Street Journal slideshows would be awesome. <laughs> Only if all the pictures, though, were done in the illustrations, like on the front page, you know, the pictures of people. Oh, boy. So, so that's what we need. And someone will get on that soon enough. Yeah, Jeff was talking about how his, his brother signed up to play youth soccer in 1982. And uh, his brother, David, was 12 at the time. He was shy. He was socially awkward and had few friends. And his mom and dad thought joining a team might prove beneficial. So they signed him up to play soccer. And we're skipping over some of this because I don't want to read the entire copy. But he was talking about how, you know, the uniforms that, that they wore and all that. And he says, before every game, the, the coach would have all these players form a circle, put their hands inside, and yell out, team. Then without fail, my brother walked to the bench, sat down, and remained there, completely ignored for three quarters. Immediately before the final period began, the coach would point to David and begrudgingly insert him at right fullback for the requisite minimum amount all kids must play. He made it painfully clear to the others that my brother was the weakest of weak links, that he was useless as a soccer player. He said, more than three decades removed, I detest that coach. I know his name, know his whereabouts, and often fantasize about running into him in a supermarket or a coffee shop. And he talks about the conversation he would have and how he, he says at the end of it, he says, in the name of winning a bunch of meaningless 12-year-old soccer games, you effing destroyed my older brother. Um, I got to say, when I first read this, this, this kind of hit me as both – a former player and a former coach. And I've I've played at a pretty high level, as have you. I've, I've coached at a pretty high level. And we've seen stories like this. Both of us have. Because, I mean, you know from being around your dad for years, and, and I know from being around my dad for years. I mean, my dad was a coach forever. And, and really, I got into playing and got into coaching largely because of him. And seeing stuff like this, I mean, part of me says, okay, you can't have a team full of all-stars all the time. You just, you can't. There are going to be some kids that, you know, are not as good as everybody else. And it doesn't mean that there's anything personal if you don't play them all the time. It doesn't mean that you're trying to, you know, destroy the kid's psyche. On the other hand, there's a delicate balance with how you handle that. And I'm kind of wondering if maybe there's something that we didn't see in this piece and maybe something that, you know, Jeff isn't telling us as far as how it really in his words, destroyed his brother. I think that's that's the disconnect I have when at least talking about this part of the piece. You know, I had a, a really strange experience looking back on the one year I played Pop Warner football. Um, and at the, at the time, it was something where, you know, you were counting plays to try to make sure that kids got the requisite number of plays that they needed to have in order to qualify, you know, where everyone was playing on the team. And that was a rule. And I remember one of the parents who was a, you know, an assistant coach, so to speak, um, would be, would, that would be like his job, make sure that certain people got their plays in. And I was one of those people. And a big reason for that was the fact that I was a hundred, I remember I was 121 pounds the year that I played and 120 pounds was the limit for the team, the next level down which is really where I should have been based on my age. Right. So 
I ended up playing with the oldest team when I was, you know, 12 and other guys are 14. And it, it really was something where I just was not physically at a point where I could compete with, uh, you know, a lot of these people from a strength standpoint or anything like that. And, you know, it, it was pretty obvious to me early on that I was at a pretty big disadvantage physically, you know, played against kids that were a couple years older than me in this sport. Whereas in baseball, that was no problem. I'd be like, fine, I'll play against kids older than me. I don't care. And it didn't matter as much because it wasn't as much of a game of strength and, and, you know, raw power and things of that nature. So I, I had this experience too, where I was one of the weak links, so to speak on the team. And I had to get my requisite playing time. And, the one thing that I do remember, though, about that whole situation is the guy who was our head coach was exceptionally positive about everything, and that did make the experience very, very different. Just because I was the guy that you know he had to play at certain times or had to get his certain number of plays in, he was still positive with me all the time. He still want you know I mean he still made it so it was encouraging and you know motivated everyone and all of that. And because of that, it still was a, a, a experience that I, I can say that I enjoyed somewhat, despite. The fact that I wasn't a very good football player for that year. But if the shoe was on the other foot and he was a guy that only cared about winning and was openly scornful towards you for coming <laughs> out and taking up his playing time, well, that's kind of sad. It is. And see, that's that's another thing, too. I, I can say this from coaching kids at a level where everybody has to play and then coaching kids at a level where you don't have to play everybody. You can just play nine guys you know, in, in baseball and never play anybody else. And I always made a point of this, and I, I got a great example from my dad because, you know, he coached for years in leagues where people had to play. And, you know, he, he had to find a way to get everybody into the game and all that. And, and I never saw him outwardly scorn anybody. I never saw him, you know, disrespect anybody. He did, you know, kind of calmly suggest that some kids might be better in different sports at times. But it wasn't meant in you know a, a hateful way or anything like that. It was just trying to help them succeed and, and be somewhere where they they would have a little more fun and, and be doing something that they'd be a little more talented with. Which you know there's there's no harm in that. But it, I kind of am reminded of a story where in coaching one of these kids, I had one of them come up to me one time, and this was a league where he didn't have to play, and we're playing in you know in postseason tournament, and he didn't have to play, and he asked me if he was going to get in the game, and I said I've got a plan for you. And, you know, he, he kind of looked a little skeptical, but looked a little sad and kind of went back to his seat and everything. And I ended up using him to run because he was extremely quick and I was going to need him, need him to pitch later on the tournament anyway, but he was extremely quick and put him into run. He scored the winning run of the game. And, you know, it's, it's all in how you approach it. And I think that coaches get a really bad rap and, and a lot of times, and, and again, not to disrespect Jeff, because I, I get what he's getting at, but a lot of times coaches get this this kind of painting with a broad brush where they think that everybody is like these coaches who are obsessed a-holes who focus everything on winning games. And, and there's not, you know, they're not all like that. There are a lot of coaches that are dedicated to bettering kids and helping them grow and getting them into places where they can succeed. And I, I wish Jeff had spent a little more time focusing on that kind of coach and that kind of parent instead of focusing on all the negative like he did couple things first of all the idea that everyone has a role is one you hear all the time in team sports right you know any successful team any team that gets to the world series you're going to hear talk about people's roles ad nauseum for the entire series and you can look at a team like the cardinals or the red Sox, and you can talk about the way that their bullpens are and everyone has a role out there and then you've got you know maybe the backup catcher and his role is to play you know once a week or depending on the team however it might be you, you see my point I so don't. 
you can still bring that same mentality to coaching kids, which is something that you did with the player that you mentioned. My role for you in this game is that you're going to be a pinch runner because you're going to need your legs at some point, and you're going to pitch later in the tournament and put them in a position where you can participate in a meaningful way, which is score the winning run. And that's and that's great. It's a fantastic example. Um, the other side of it, the uh, the other thing I really wanted to mention about this article was later in the article he started talking about how he didn't want his kids to play team sports and instead wanted them to participate in things like track and field where all you're doing is competing against yourself. In most cases. Now, first of all, that's completely not true. Um, sure. <laughs> I mean, it really it really wasn't. And I, I mean, if you have I know you have the article right in front of you. Um, I mean, do you have that, that that graph right in front of you? I do. He says, I want my kids to run track and cross country where the ultimate goal is to accomplish your personal best, which that's part of it. But you're also on a team at that point. Right. Sure. You're on a team. And what about the idea, excuse me, of racing against someone else? I mean, isn't there some sort of competitive aspect that's going to be coming into play here? And I understand his point is probably more about the fact that, you know, you're out there and, it's, you know, you're competing and it's more and it's not coaches aren't in your face and limiting your playing time and those kinds of things. Sure. I see what he's getting at. But at the same time, saying instead, I want my kids to do this because my brother had a bad experience is, a, as you mentioned, exceptionally close minded attitude. Yeah, also he says, I want them to learn an instrument to master a craft to join the drama club. I want my son to be a science nerd. I want my daughter to write poetry. I don't care if they win and I don't care if they lose as long as they try and as long as they're happy. Now, there are a couple things here. And he also goes on to say, we place such an unhealthy emphasis in this country upon victory without stopping to ponder the end game. Now, a couple of things to say here. First of all, I if I were in his spot and I had you know kids that, that I was trying to help grow... I would want them to do those things, too, because it helps them become a more well-rounded person. I think sports right. plays a role in that, but you also need to have academic pursuits and other non-athletic pursuits that help you grow as an individual. So that's that's a worthy cause. I'm, I'm perfectly on board with that. However, he talks about, we place such an unhealthy emphasis in this country upon victory without stopping to ponder the endgame. Well, I'm not saying you need to be way overboard, like this coach was to his brother, or anything like that, but there is a point to having wins and losses in sports because you have wins and losses in life and you can't just tell life, hey, I don't want you to you know, give my, my son this, this promotion over this other person because it's going to destroy them if you don't and you know, my, my kid deserves it. I mean, that's, that's not the way life works. And, and again, I'm not trying to denigrate Jeff's kids or, or to denigrate what he's writing about, but I think that we kind of go too far in both directions. There's way overzealous baseball coach or basketball coach or whatever. And you and I both know that guy. Uh, huh. There's, there's also the person who thinks that if I just shelter my kids from these tough experiences, then they'll grow from it and they won't ever have to experience pain. And that's, that's completely misguided as well. The world's going to find you. Exactly. It really doesn't matter what you do for your kids. The, the world is going to find them. I should say, um, but yes, I mean, the, the list of stuff that he said he wanted for his kids, I mean, and that's all well and good. I mean, let's assume that's to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that's just kind of in the, as you mentioned, best case scenario kind of look, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, forcing my kids to practice the violin uh, every day like some horribly stereotypical Asian parent or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we've all seen that portrayed somewhere or kind of written about or something like that. We have. And, we have. <clears throat> I mean, and that's, and then I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think that's saying what you were saying about, look, I want them to be well rounded, and that's why all of these things would be great things. But flip side of it, Brian, how many life skills could you say that you learned by being part of a team 
I mean, God. so many different things about uh, support and communication and uh, encouragement and how you want to be treated as a person, uh, even, you know, uh, all of those things. I, I can think back to so many different experiences playing baseball at various levels and in different ways. And, you know, even when it came to as a catcher in high school, thinking about in my senior year, a couple different pitchers we had on our team kind of teaching me that you can't treat everybody the same because one guy you know needed to be told that his fastball was really popping the mitt and his curveball was really breaking even if it wasn't because he needed that help because he didn't really quite believe whereas another guy really wanted to be challenged and if you went out and said look let's make a pitch and strike this guy out right now it seemed like it helped him yeah true i mean there are all these different things that i can say that i learned from playing team sports and i mean even from my coaches and the way that they handled people and and in positions where you know i've been working with other people in a position where uh, i mean the list could go on and on and on so the idea of saying look I, i don't want my kid to even have the potential of that i think you're actually forcing your child to miss out on a lot now if they don't want to play team sports you know obviously you don't have to force them Sure, sure. <laughs> but, it, but at the same time, your brother's bad experience can take away something that can be wonderful. Well, it's, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying yeah. to belittle your brother's experience at all. True. I mean, that that's a pretty big thing to take away from a kid. Yeah, I was going to say, as much as I respect Jeff, and, and I do, because when you're looking at people these days who who write what they write, obviously to get a reaction and to try to draw people out and and to you know, go into this false hustle debate crap that ESPN has made their their nut off of these days. I mean, Jeff is not that guy, and I think you and I can both agree on it. Jeff is a oh, very it was a very heartfelt and genuine piece that he wrote. Yeah, I agree, and and like I say, that's that part's fine. I I just I think that there are two things in in play here, and two things that he needs to consider. And if I were to talk to him, I would say these same things. One, what do your kids want out of life? Because to me, that's the most important thing. I again say this, not being a parent. Hashtag real parenting, but. You know, the, the whole thing that really matters is what your kids want out of life. And, and you are there to help them get what they want out of life as much as you can. That's, that's obviously the most important thing. And then the other thing, too, if you don't want them playing team, team sports, there are other things within school that, you know, there's, you know, the, the uh, math decathlon, there's debate team, which, you know, I, I hate to say this being a, uh, a sports media person. I was on the debate team. I have no problem admitting that, I guess, now that I look at it. Uh, there's, you know, forensics. Or should you? Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that, that kids can do to help, you know, sharpen their competitive skills, not to a point where they're going to become, you know, hyper, uh, you know, over the top about it, but at least to a point where they can learn these necessary life skills. And I think people tend to dismiss the life skills that sports offer far too often. Uh, you know... I'm sorry, Jeff, but your kids are not always going to be competing against themselves. Very true. Very true. You know, um, and yes, doing your personal best is really all you can control. Um, and sometimes that's just not quite enough in a given situation. And <laughs> I mean, if there's anything that you you have to learn from sports is how to deal with failure to a point. And that doesn't mean that I'm still go- I still don't think I'm very good at it, but. You know, playing a game like baseball with all of the, the, oh, if you fail seven out of ten times, you're an all-star cliche. Yeah. You do have to get used to the fact that, look, I hit that ball as hard as I possibly could right at the second baseman, and I'm going back to the bench. Uh, It's very trite to say that it's a metaphor for life sometimes, but it is. 
Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's on how you look at it, too. You have to think about, okay, am I going to dwell all game on hitting that one ball right at the second baseman, or am I going to go up next time trying to hit the ball over his head or, you know, whatever else? I mean, it's that's that's the thing I think too many people ignore is it's not necessarily what happens to you in life, but how you respond to it. Sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think it's a well-intentioned piece. I think that that's, that's you know, beyond dispute. At the same sure. time, the villain of this piece is this coach. I mean, you know, we started the program talking about Richie Incognito and bullying and things of that nature. And really, that coach was a bully. Yeah. In, in, in a way. I mean, and throwing that word around is, I know, a really dangerous thing these days. Sure. But still, he was – his experience of coaching the team was we're going to win at all costs and – I mean, come on, the kid's 12. And that's why summer ball can be such a really troubling experience to see the way that, you know, especially, you know, travel ball parents, which you've seen plenty of, can act. (laughs) Yeah, parents are a whole other story, a whole other show. We could spend three hours talking about, you know, rec league parents, but... Well, a lot of times those parents are the coaches, though, is what, what I'm saying. Yeah, very true. Fair enough. So, I mean, a lot of these guys aren't just out there, hey, I'm just coaching this team without their kid on it. Yeah, that, that's, again, a whole other thing. And, and you're right. And, and that's, that's the thing. I, I think if, if talking to Jeff, the easiest thing to say to him would be, you know, I apologize for what happened to your brother. However, you know, have, have a serious talk with your kids and don't let that completely, you know, color, shape, tarnish, whatever else, the rest of, of your life and theirs. You know, and it's not beyond just saying, like, look, why don't you go talk to the coach? Uh, yeah. If they say, hey, I really want to go play football, and you're afraid of the experience they might have being on a football team and it being a situation that could end up like your brother's soccer experience, then go talk to the coach. Get a feel for that person. And then maybe if that coach isn't one that you – I mean it's someone that that you really have a strong dislike for right off the bat, then maybe you can find another team for them to play on or something like that. But then you start getting into the whole idea of – you know, how much are you really going to try and shield your kids? And that's a whole nother, I mean, that's a whole nother debate that's tricky enough for parents to deal with, let alone two people that don't have kids. Although just come up with hashtags about parents. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's take things in a little bit lighter direction as we God. get toward the midpoint of the program. You'd sent me this. So I, I figure you'll have some comments on it, but I'll go ahead and, and tell people what happened. A flight carrying CSKA Moscow fans to Manchester had to be diverted to Denmark to eject drunken passengers. That's always a fun oh, thing yeah. to have happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, and, and this is – got a couple stories involving soccer here um, and specifically soccer-related travel. It's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing the way um, that things have gotten <laughs> so uh, – I mean security has become so heightened around a lot of these high-level uh, soccer matches that you end up with stories like this where it says uh, – I mean – so the EasyJet flight from Moscow was forced to land at Copenhagen Airport at 3.15 p.m. on Sunday amid reports one drunken CSKA supporter had started pushing staff on board. Six of, <laughs> six of his friends were then also escorted from the service after complaining about his treatment. <laughs> I mean – this is uh, this is very Vinnie Jones, isn't it? Yes, well, uh, it's I mean it's it's stereotypical soccer fan. It really is. <laughs> Talking about how uh, the fans were en route to Manchester for Tuesday's Champions League clash against Manchester City, which uh, City won five two, by the way. Um, 
and the fans have since booked new flights ahead of kickoff. And that's the thing that I just didn't understand. So it was you're getting off. So you're so drunk that you couldn't make it there. Well, we'll just book another flight. <laughs> How that, much money are you dealing with? Yeah, would that happen in America? I don't think so. They'd be in a in a detaining cell somewhere, sitting in the the basement of the airport. I'm just thinking, though, how much disposable income do you really have set aside so you could go see CSK Moscow play? <laughs> two, uh, two quick comments about this. First of all, and I know that most people who aren't reading this don't see this picture, but that plane looks like something you would see sitting outside of a Hooters somewhere. <laughs> just, uh, just commenting. And, White plane with the orange letters? Yeah, yes, that's a good call. Also, uh, is it getting to the point now where in order to let soccer fan fly, we're going to have to have certain sections that are cordoned off with, like, chicken wire? So to, if they start throwing bottles or something like that, you know everybody's protected on the rest of the plane. It, it may be at that point. Who knows? I, I mean, yeah. I, see, you said that though, and, and instead of actually picturing a stadium where there's the fence behind the goal that you see these people <laughs> crushing up against, mainly seemingly in the matches in South America these days. But I started thinking about the Blues Brothers and bottles being chucked at the chicken wire. <laughs> So they were doing the Bonanza theme over and over again, both types of music, country and western. Barbed wire fencing, yeah, that works right. too. That's what I. That's what I was picturing. That, that as you try to go, as you go past row twenty in the plane, that's the soccer fan section. Yeah, um, we serve all of our beverages to that part of the plane in plastic, whether it be a bottle or a cup or whatever else. No glass allowed back there. Uh, yeah. Do you think they do the really the sweet move that they do at stadiums where they don't let you have the bottle cap? Oh, that's terrible. And <laughs> I, I would love to hear the rationale behind that. I have no idea what, so what made them throw figure. them, supposedly. Like, you couldn't throw the bottle. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, yeah, they'll throw the bottle, but it won't hurt as much if it doesn't have the cap on it. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't really. I didn't get that. I, I was told it was because the, the people had been throwing the caps. Okay, but then they throw the bottle. <laughs> Again, I, you know, you're asking for a lot of information I don't have, Brian. Uh, you know, I feel like whoever came up with this policy writes some of the idiot stories that we're going to read later in the programs. <laughs> you were uh, you were talking about the other soccer travel story. I'll, I'll let you speak to that a little more because I know that you're a little more well versed in uh, in the travel aspect of this, or at least what they're referring to. So uh, it was the uh, <laughs> the South Wales it's Derby. So I'll let you speak to that. Well, Cardiff City and Swansea were playing, and it's the first time that the South Wales Derby had been played at the top flight in God, several years, uh, if at all. And oh, it was the first ever in the Premier League era. There we go. Um, now, Cardiff won 1-0. Shocker for non-soccer fans. I know everyone's just nodding in agreement. Jerry's probably like, <laughs> yep, 1-0. Of course it was. So the thing, though, that made it so amazing, and the, one, of the, one of the headlines in one of the papers uh, around Britain was El Trafico about this game. And the reason why is if you were coming from Swansea and you're a Swansea supporter going to the game, what happened was police escorted every fan that was going in a single caravan, basically. Now, it says that this was uh, a usually a 40-minute drive and instead uh, took all morning in a crowded in crowded buses during a slow-paced police escort. Um so it, it was just amazing to see these pictures of 
a road that had been closed down, maybe except for a single lane and a long line of cars and the other precautions that were where fans didn't even get their tickets until they were on the bus and in the safety of police and police would escort this group of people directly into their seats. And then as soon as the match is over, then it would be the same deal. And so they basically had their own section so they wouldn't be mixing with Cardiff City supporters. And I just. I mean, what an atmosphere to be part of. But uh, I mean, Brian, even going to a game at the school of your biggest rival from Middle Tennessee, say, or whoever you would say that you have the most passion for as a sports fan, which is a rapidly waning thing, uh, <laughs> thanks to both of our jobs, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, pretty much. But the point being, whatever team you felt the most fire in your heart for going to, you know, a game with huge importance at your greatest rivals, uh, you wouldn't need a police escort. You wouldn't need a security guard around you. You wouldn't need any number of those things. And instead, a bunch of people decided, like, yeah, this is this is totally worth it. This is fantastic. I can't believe we get to go. Well, the bad thing is we, we've got the Iron Bowl coming up in a few weeks, and you wouldn't even see this at the Iron Bowl. And that's that's one of the biggest games in this country as far as just a hated you know, rivalry where neither team's fans would, uh, you know, would piss on the other one if they were on fire. And, you know, you still don't have that at Jordan-Hare or at Bryant-Denny, whatever. You know, you just walk up. And sure, you might catch some harassment or whatever, but it's it's not something where you need a police escort. And I think that people in this country, they talk about the rivalries that we have and, and you know, the, the things that surround all of these games, the pageantry and stuff, and they have no concept of what happens, like what you're describing. They they would just be completely lost if they went to something like this. Why am I guessing that some Americans probably have heard about this and thought this is what happens when they don't have guns? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but see, the the place I was going though is which uh, which head did Corso put on? Did he put on the Cardiff head or the Swansea head? <laughs> The Swansea Swan head, or the <laughs> Cardiff City Dragon. Um, and, I mean, and Cardiff City is a is a very interesting story in its own right. If I mean, just a, a little side note here. I mean, they've got so many things going on where they were promoted uh, from the championship to the Premier League. They were taken over a couple years ago by this guy, Vincent Tan, who is a Malaysian businessman. Now, this is a team that was known as the Bluebirds for its entire existence. Their uniforms are blue so on and so forth and now the crest of the team actually shows like a dragon on it and their uniforms are all red and that was because the businessman who came in and you know they had some pretty serious debt took the club over and paid all the debt said well i, I took over the team and in my mind red's a luckier color and we're going to change. And a lot of fans have felt really conflicted uh, about being in the premier league but also doing so while kind of losing the soul of the club and it's an interesting thing to think of, but obviously that didn't matter too much when it came to the passion for this game as I mean, just some of the reaction shots that you that I was able to see from this match, like when the one goal was scored. I mean, the place just went berserk. See, that's something that I think a lot of people make jokes about soccer in this country and, you know, probably with good reason in some cases. But when you actually watch a match, even if you just kind of put aside your your prejudices and whatever else, and you see the supporters of both sides at a soccer match, and you hear, you know, the crescendo as as the ball travels down the pitch, you know, and and you get in a situation where you've got you know five on three or whatever, something like that, just the the way that people get involved with it, the the songs that they sing and stuff like that, it's crazy. It's unlike anything that we really know here. And sure, you know, you have certain schools where. 
like at Tennessee, they sing Rocky Top and all that, but it's not anywhere near like that. And that's that's the one thing that sets it apart for me. I think that the replication of this atmosphere, at least the attempt of that in different stadiums around the country, like a Seattle and Portland especially, those those two have really kind of led the charge, it seems like uh, that among MLS cities, although you could, you know, point to someone like a Kansas City as well or uh but the the atmosphere really is completely different. The involvement of the fans is completely different. Um, there, there are no scoreboards that are cueing any of these fans to get loud or anything like that. It just happens. And the passion really is there. And it's something that's a, an interesting cultural phenomenon. I mean, you talk about football teams being ingrained in, in our society. I mean, their football teams are, I mean, it's, it's more than that. And that's really tough to, to think about when you think about just about how dedicated some of these SEC fans are to the point that Clay Travis is able to write such biting articles about them <laughs> that are so fun. No, it's, I mean, it's true, though, but if they, didn't, if they weren't so ridiculous, the article wouldn't be as funny. What, you mean they don't play Sandstorm and Seven Nation Army and stuff at soccer matches to try to get people to respond? No, strangely, <laughs> they don't. Although I find it amusing that West Ham has their song about I'll be blowing bubbles, and that's, you know, that's one of their club <laughs> traditions, so, you know, go figure. Um, and then in Green Street Hooligans, they just kick the, kick the crap out of you after they <laughs> sing it, so that's, you know, that's cool. But just the idea, though, that people would go through such lengths to be at a game um, because of a level of passion is kind of amazing. I mean, have you read any of the stories about Americans who have attended uh, qualifiers or even friendlies against Mexico at Azteca? Uh, yes. And just to, to hear them talk about it, people will never have a concept of anything like that until they actually go take it in. I mean, even just reading it doesn't do it justice. Well, just the, the talk of as the U.S. got a point there during this qualifying cycle, hearing fans talking about how they were pelted with liquid once the final whistle sounded and they were cheering. It's <laughs> like, oh, well, that's cool. But we got the point. Yeah, it's totally worth it that this might be urine thrown at me right now. <laughs> By the way, uh, speaking of, of songs and, and soccer, I, I know that I'm a Celtic supporter. However, I still uh, have to give credit to Hibernian in the, the Scottish Premier League for uh, their usage of the Proclaimer Sunshine on Leith before their matches. <laughs> Seriously, it's a good song, and, and I, I'm kind of amused that Hibernian uses it. Well, I would, I would imagine that the Proclaimers probably has a tie to that club somehow. Like maybe they supported that club or yeah, something like that. Yeah, they do. They do. Okay. All right. Well, then that that makes all the sense in the world, and that's pretty cool. I mean, you can, you know, and that's something that in in uh, especially in England, it's it's a lot more common to know what celebrities support which clubs. Um, and I'm, you know, there's this guy that's on CNN that likes to talk about his club, and we won't even mention his name because it's just not worth it. Yeah. But you know, you can also talk about Rod the guys, Stewart. The guys Right, Rod Stewart, Celtic fan, crying the night that they beat Barcelona in the Champions League a, a year ago. Yep. Um, you know, and it was funny because that match didn't – it meant something, and yet it didn't all at the same time. It was just a group match. It was like, oh, well, Barcelona lost. They're just going to win the next couple games in advance. It meant something but, to me, damn it. <laughs> anyway. But you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. In the grand scheme of things. But it was a great <laughs> win. Speaking or of, even you, the guys from Oasis. Yeah, They're true. Manchester City fans. Yeah. And, of course, you know, they're they're miserable human beings too, but <laughs> never mind that. <laughs> Yeah, it's too bad that, that one doesn't like United or one likes United and one likes City. That would be perfect. Then they could have their own commercial. <laughs> or they could go into radio production, one of the two. Um, there you go. Speaking of, uh, of football on this side of the pond.
pond as we wrap up the program. Let's take a look at some of the games this week that might actually have some consequence. Thursday night, forget Vikings-Redskins. I'm concerned with the two games Thursday night. First of all, Oklahoma plus 14.5 at Baylor. That is a large number at Waco. Oh, I guess that, that that's just uh, telling you how fast Vegas believes that Baylor can play. And it tells you how quickly Oklahoma has sunk after losing to Texas and, and uh, looking kind of lackluster in some other efforts. What's happened in, in Norman the last couple years? Um, you know, honestly, I, I think that if you look at Stoops and look at who he's bringing in there, somebody had the theory earlier this year, and, you know, this is something I haven't really discussed. Somebody had the theory that once you've been at a school too long, your voice kind of goes ignored after a while. You don't have the same kind of allure. And Steve Spurrier actually mentioned he left Florida for that particular reason. He said you need a new voice in the room and, and uh, you know, people kind of stop paying attention to you, whether it's your own team or your recruits or whatever. Maybe that's part of it. He's not getting the same level of recruits he once got. I mean, you look at some of the other guys that were in that region who were stars that were all going to, to Oklahoma at one point. They're all going all over the place now. So he's not getting all those great recruits he once used to get. Now, I'm not saying they're not a good team because they are, but they're not what they were. And that's just a jarring thing. I mean, there are certain programs you expect to be good at all times, and Oklahoma's one of them, and especially with the recent success they've had, why wouldn't you expect them to be good? Um, but, man, Baylor is impressive, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I have to say, if this line were to hold, can you imagine if Baylor were to, to – you know, and there have been times this year where Baylor has looked as though running up 70 was nothing. Can you imagine if Baylor put 70 on Oklahoma, what the, what the college football world would be saying Friday morning? No, I really can't, actually. I think that would that would be one of the lead stories on Around the Indignation. <laughs> How in the world can you put 70 on the Sooners? What's going on with the tradition of college football, Stephen A.? I don't know what's happening to this world where the Oklahoma Sooners and Bob Stoops, supposedly a great defensive mind, gives up 70 points to Baylor. They need to change the rules. I like Baylor in this game. I don't know if I like him by that big of a number, but I like Baylor, especially at Floyd Casey. I do, too. I, I like him I like him to win the game. That is a big number, though. That would be a stay away just because the name value of Oklahoma would scare me off that number. The other game, Thursday night, with another big number, surprisingly, Oregon minus 10 at the farm. I don't know. What do you think of the, first of all, the, the two top five teams are playing on Thursday night? Uh, that's really unusual. It's it's a coup for ESPN. I mean, it's it's huge numbers for them, especially going up against Oklahoma Baylor on, on their competitor. But, you know, for two top five teams, you would figure that would be one of those games they could figure out a way to play it on a Saturday night instead of having the Notre Dame-Pittsburgh game they're going to have on Saturday night on ABC. Well, you know, I'm pretty excited to see <laughs> Ryan Kelly scream at people until he's red in the face. Um, you know, and maybe that's why he was the perfect coach for Notre Dame. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I just I would think that you'd, you'd easily want to move that to Saturday night, although, you know, as you mentioned, that, that really does make the Oklahoma-Baylor game um, – Look kind of boring by comparison. You've got number three and number five. And then, of course, DeAnthony Thomas is now added to the fun by talking about how they're going to put up 40 on Stanford. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, not having Gardner kill Stanford, that's that's a big thing for them. But I love, I love, love, love Hogan. Uh, he's, you look at him, he's the typical Stanford quarterback. The, the how in the hell is this guy this athletic white guy quarterbacking Stanford? I, I love him as a quarterback. I don't think Stanford necessarily beats Oregon. In fact, it might not even be, you know, within a touchdown. 
but 10 is an awfully big number, especially considering Stanford's defense, even without injuries, and the fact that they're playing in Palo Alto. And the one thing that, that Stanford seems to be able to do that other teams seem to fail at is they seem to be able to win the battle uh, with Oregon's offensive line. And that's the way that you end up having to beat these plays, all the scheme and everything like that that's out there. The only answer, because with the way that the, the, the zone read and the read option and all of those different elements, you know, the stuff that, that Oregon has become known for offensively that Chip Kelly brought, all of that stuff is designed to basically give you a numbers advantage to the point where you've got one-on-one blocking or, you know, or a numbers advantage against the defense, right? So the way that Stanford was able to beat it, though, was simply by beating blocks. And if you're able to take one block or throw them out of the way, then you're able to go make a play. And Stanford was able to do that at Autzen last year in the 17-14 overtime win. And the thing is, though, is it's been so out of whack, uh, the numbers that Oregon would put up against Stanford versus almost every other school. They've scored 40 points a game in every game since. You know, in years past, this just screamed a Shane Scove spying on Marcus Mariota all game, didn't it? It seemed like they had some way, some way to do that, and that you know, be it a spy or or any number of things. But you know, Oregon tries a bunch of different, very unorthodox kind of things where they'll run a read play where the guy that they are zoned reading is a defensive tackle. <laughs> it's 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 interesting to watch them do it, and you'll see it once in a while. But Stanford's defensive line is so good and and so stout against the run that uh, I mean, it's 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 still a tall order, but. I mean, I still like Oregon in this game. They've they've got so much talent offensively. I just have a hard time, you know, seeing Stanford being able to hold them to something like 14 points again. And as much as we've seen good things that have come from Kevin Hogan, doesn't it alarm you when a guy that, you know, has shown so much can end up having games like he did at Oregon State where he threw for 88 yards? Uh, yeah, that is a little bit troubling. Although, you know, that team, like you say, they seem to have – a matchup advantage, however they have it, against Oregon. Like like I say, I don't think it's a situation where they necessarily beat Oregon in Palo Alto, but it's closer than that number appears, I think. I think that we should go to Jonathan Martin's coach from Harvard-Westlake to talk about how <laughs> hanging out with the other Stanford kids might make them advantaged in ways of things like scheme or things like that. But, uh, you know, these Oregon kids probably just view that as weakness because they think they're just going to put up 40. <laughs> We, we don't have to analyze these uh, these next couple of games, but I just wanted to bring them up. A uh, school you like, a school you don't like, BYU plus seven and a hay at Camp Randall. At Camp Randall? Yeah. Go, go be edgers. <laughs> kind of figured you were going to come to that. Um, something that's an interesting matchup in the, uh, in the Mountain West, and I, I didn't really think I'd find myself saying this a few weeks ago, but Nevada plus nine and a half at Fort Collins. If you had told me that number five weeks ago, I would have laughed at you. It's, I mean... Colorado State all of a sudden, you know, that would be a game as a San Diego State fan that I would look at on the schedule no matter if home or away and think, all right, well, you know, the Aztecs can beat Colorado State and that'll be, you know, one more to help them get towards that magical six and bowl eligibility. And uh, all of a sudden, that, that's not a gimme at all anymore. And, uh, I mean, it's been really interesting to see that the way that, that things have, have turned around a little bit. Um, <laughs> and it, I mean that whole program has had some interesting things written about it, talking about the way that the the administration has made a point of saying it wants to put more money into the football program as a way to try to recruit more students. I don't know if you heard about any of that. <laughs> I did not. That's interesting. Oh, really? All right. Well, I mean, so 
we're going to pull back the curtain here. But Brian, you go ahead and give your thoughts on the game. I'll try and find that article. <laughs> it's funny you brought up the whole San Diego State thing because I'm reminded of San Diego State basketball playing at Moby before Colorado State became Colorado State in basketball. They would they would always go to Moby and and you know they would always look on paper to be that school who should walk in there and defeat them handily in Moby, and they would always either get played really closely or lose at Moby. It's kind of the same situation. Of course, we're talking about football now, but it's uh, it's sort of that same concept, at least to me. Well, you're playing at altitude, and apparently uh, <laughs> I have learned from being a suffering Aztec fan that apparently that is a big <laughs> excuse to be used um, you know, from a sea-level school in a mountain conference. <laughs> so noted. <laughs> I I mean, you know, it, it's uh, and I, I, this article is is loading here, and I'll, I'll share that with you in just a moment. But I, I mean, colleges obviously athletics can play an absolutely huge role in the way that a college is perceived, right or wrong. And you hear about an athletic school being good in academics, and you're surprised. And you hear about an academic school being good in athletics, and you're kind of surprised, just like with Stanford. You know, I mean, this coach is throwing out all the stereotypes about, well, you know, he's a Stanford guy, so he doesn't really get it. He doesn't really. <laughs> and that's that's kind of ridiculous. But then you end up with these these schools like Colorado State saying that they want to use football in order to try and attract students. And think about it. You're, you're in Fort Collins. You're not exactly in the metropolitan area or anything like that. And it's an interesting gamble. But this story, and this is something that uh, also appeared in the, the Wall Street Journal um, on September 28th. Um, and uh, it said Colorado State University is seeing the future of its higher education, and it has goalposts and end zones. Faced with declining state funding, Colorado State is raising money to build a 246,040,000 seat football stadium on its Fort Collins campus. Uh, University President Tony Frank says the new facility will help build a winning football team while advancing one of the school's highest priorities, attracting more out-of-state students paying higher tuition. Skeptics, including some alumni and faculty, see the project as a boondoggle, especially for a team that plays plays in a relatively low-profile athletic conference and doesn't sell out its current 32-5-seat stadium. The debate has sparked dueling websites, animated letters to the editors, and arguments about the role of sports in a university. Now, there's plenty more to read, and if you'd like to, I encourage you to check out the article because it's an interesting interesting idea but um man that's a it's a pretty ambitious plan that's uh contingent on success at some point on the field it's i funny. mean this year is <laughs> this year is helping that idea but it's still a pretty big gamble and leap to take yeah you, you said animated letters to the editor and the first thing that went through my mind was somebody's pulling bit strips off facebook and sending in letters to the editor that way <laughs> but I, I digress. I think that's that's one of the things that, and you know, Virginia has asked their fans to buy into, uh, you know, future success when they've shown no inclination whatsoever that they can provide it. Uh, you're kind of putting the cart before the horse there. It's it's like you know, put your faith in us before we've done anything to prove that that we're worthy of it. And that's always a risky strategy. I, I would love to see them, you know, rack up a couple of bowl bids and say, hey, we're going in the right direction before just banking on one decent season. I well, I think I think this was all in place well before anything was going on with this season. I think that it's just a a, a very strange thing to you know look. You hear things like the NFL is a copycat league. Well, it's not just the NFL that's sure. a copycat. If we some, see something that someone else is doing that's working, then the inclination is let's go ahead and do that, and we're going to be able to be very successful because this is what someone else is doing. Well, not necessarily. I mean, 
I, I am not trying to rip on Colorado State. I am really not. But at the same time, <laughs> that location may not be for everyone. I went to school in San Diego because the idea of the beach appealed to me a whole lot more than the idea of the mountains. And that may be true for a lot of people. Um, just because your school has a winning football team, I have a hard time thinking that people are going to go, well, that, you know what, I want to go there because they have a pretty good football program and a nice stadium. Well, yeah, but the positive is at least you can take the 4650 you get from playing in the New Mexico Bowl and roll that into the stadium money. Right, yeah, the net loss that you end up taking from playing <laughs> in a low-level bowl. Whew. Yeah, that's, we'll, we'll talk about that as, as bowl season comes along, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, but still, I mean, college football is so funny. Colorado State is averaging 33 points a game and sits at fifth in the conference. <laughs> you know, Fresno State number one at 43.9, by the way, in case you were wondering. Some other uh, quick one-liners here as we draw somewhat close toward the end of the program. We talked about Notre Dame and Pittsburgh. Notre Dame minus four at Heinz Field. This is a game that, of course, is put on that number just because it involves Notre Dame and a heavy TV audience, isn't sure, it? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll still take Notre Dame in the four, even though I don't feel good about it. Auburn only minus seven and a half in Knoxville. Well, you know, I saw something earlier today talking about if you took uh, the way that Vegas views these teams and uh, ranked them that way as opposed to and then contrasted it with the actual BCS rankings, you'd get some very different results with Auburn at 22 and Mizzou at 29. Yeah, and Tennessee got hammered by Missouri, just obliterated by Missouri. Josh Josh Dobbs looked just lost at times. Looked like a freshman? Yes, very much. But <laughs> I, I realize that uh, Tennessee still has this mystique about playing in Neyland Stadium and, and as though, you know, that's that's the toughest place to win in the world and everything. But this team is very young, very injured, and not anywhere close to the level that Auburn is right now. And seven and a half oh. seems awfully light. It does, I you know, but the, I mean, this would be one of the lines that I hear about and immediately think that uh, Vegas knows something that I very much don't, and I'm sure that that's the case in a lot of uh, on a lot of levels. But you know what I'm saying? You see some lines and you think this is either a typo or we'll get corrected tomorrow, or did someone get hurt on one side that I'm not aware <laughs> of? And when you start thinking those things, that's when, I don't know, that's when you almost need to pump your own brakes and stay away. Yeah, you're like, where's the one in this line? It has to be somewhere. Yeah. We, uh, believe it or not, Ed, we have a de facto elimination game in the American uh, Athletic Association, or whatever that is they're calling themselves. Two one-loss teams, both along with Louisville, Houston plus 10.5 at the Central Florida. The Central Florida. I think it's the Central Florida's year. Same here. <laughs> no, I, I mean they—they they obviously the impressive win at Louisville, and um, I mean, but they—they've managed to show. I mean, I, I guess I don't know. What do you think? Imagine if George O'Leary had managed to stay at Notre Dame, uh, regardless of his resume. That would have been interesting. I, it, at this point, maybe they're not as good as they were with Brian Kelly. Maybe they don't get to a national championship game, but at least I think they're competitive. And for all the jokes that George O'Leary has has uh, taken because of his resume and everything else. He's done a really good job building that program at, at Central Florida. And just looking at some of the athletes he's got, they can play against bigger schools. I mean, they beat Penn State in Happy Valley. They beat Louisville, as you mentioned. Blake Bortles, a tremendous quarterback and a guy who could play at you know just about any school that doesn't employ his own read. I, I really like that team. I think they win that, that whole league. I mean, maybe Louisville comes back and finds a way to sneak in after Central Florida loses again. I, I just like Central Florida. It's it's their year, like you said. 
Now, does this kind of, uh, I mean, does this prove once and for all would be a little strong, but, uh, I mean, resumes apparently just mean nothing. <laughs> yeah. Ask any you journalism know. major. <laughs> right. Lie it on your resume. You're like, okay, well, can you do the job or not do the job? <laughs> Fine. I don't care about your resume. Can you use Avid Pro or can you not? Right. <laughs> um, the the big game of the week, so we're led to believe, LSU plus 13 at Tuscaloosa. Uh, how, how anyone can bet against Alabama these days, I have no idea. I mean, they just... Yeah. If there if there was any if there was any program in college football that just seems like a well-oiled machine at this point, it's Alabama. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Faces change, results say the same. Yeah, and of course uh, Nick Saban being interviewed by Aaron Andrews for Fox tonight and all this other stuff, and you know mm. everybody's all going crazy over that. So if you're a uh, if you're a Bammer, be sure to tune in for that. And uh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, like I can look forward to him, you know, telling an attractive woman a series of highly cryptic, um, incomplete answers. <laughs> and uh, finally, I won't talk about Middle Tennessee this week because uh, they're playing Florida International, but uh, San Diego State, the Aztecs, plus six and a half at San Jose. You know, I mean, Nick Fales is a very good quarterback, the quarterback for San Jose State. I mean, he's averaging well over 300 yards a game passing. And I mean, this was a team that ended the year ranked last year right and to think about the respect that you would have to get to to just get on the map as san jose state i mean you could take a team that's equally good and you know put an sec name on them and they probably would end up in the teens somewhere in the polls because they're going to get more exposure and they're going to get more respect by default but this was a good team last year and i know that there was a coaching change and ron you know ron Kerger is now taken over he actually you know moved from university of san diego um you know, up to San Jose State this year, and but still, I mean, this is a game that San Diego State needs to win. I just don't think they will. No Eskridge in the backfield this year, though. No, but it, you know, at the same time, it, it, while the Aztecs have had some road success this year, quote unquote, I mean, you could say you know they won at Air Force, and that's you know, and the Air Force was down to about their fourth string quarterback <laughs> at that point. And then they won at New Mexico State, who at the time was riding a 17-game losing streak, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, you know, this is a team that, that has had some issues uh, away from home. I mean, they haven't looked as comfortable. Um, but they're really a team that's played to the level of competition. So I, I really think that they can cover that six, but I, I do not feel real confident that they can go up there and win. And uh, finally, as we take a look at the NFL to wind out the program, there are only really three games worth talking about. And then, of course, we'll talk about one more after that. But uh, we'll start with Carolina plus six and a half at San Francisco. Six, I mean, that's that's an interesting, uh, you know, interesting number as always as, as Vegas is trying to keep it uh, keep it nice. But I mean. Carolina has displayed so many positive characteristics. Uh, their defense has been very, very good, uh, especially with the front seven. Uh, and with the Niners' ability to run the football, that's going to be a huge matchup. And then on the back end, uh, you know, even defended the pass fairly well, but the Niners have not been passing very much anyway. Uh, so it's going to, it seems like it would be something where the Niners would need to be able to create some big plays, especially with Vernon Davis and the play action game, which they've been doing with great success. But, uh, 
you know, I, I'm going to take the Niners just because it's a, it's slightly under a touchdown. It's a long trip across the country. Anytime it's a cross-country trip involved, it seems to affect teams more than it should. Um, and the Niners' defense is still very good and coming off a bye. So uh, the rested Niners and the long journey for Carolina, I'll take the Niners and, the six and, a, and, and minus six and a half. If Carolina wins that game at all, it's because of defense. I know there's Cam Newton and Steve Smith and now Jonathan Stewart is back, but if they win that game, it's because of defense. I, I really... More than anything else in this game, I want to see the Luke Keekley vernon Davis matchup. I would pay money to see that. Well, I mean, that'll be that'll be interesting to watch, and I'm sure that Carolina's going to have to have a plan for him, obviously, but it's... Uh, the Niners' passing game is something that really has had a hard time getting going all year. I mean, they just don't have too many options right now, but Mario Manningham back at practice, and then today, Michael Crabtree cleared for practice. So couple weeks down the line, it'll be interesting to see how this Niners receiving core actually looks. And um, I'm pretty sure that Kyle Williams won't end up being second in receptions by the end of the season. I also saw somebody say earlier today that with uh, <laughs> with the Panthers at 5-3 and three and two tough games coming up, either after those games, if the Panthers are, say, 5-5, five and five, their bandwagon will be completely empty. But if they're 7-3, and three, there won't be any more room to get on. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think Ron Rivera wants to take a preemptive timeout. Let's just go ahead and think about this. We're just going to take a timeout. We're just going to think about it. Riverboat Ron. We're trying to figure out how we're going to handle this. Uh, Broncos plus or minus seven, rather, at San Diego. I find it surprising it's only seven. I, Same here. I feel like Vegas is trying to account for the fact that John Fox has had some health issues. and you know, Not that that doesn't matter, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, you would think that if there was a team that would be equipped to handle it, it would be a team with a dominant quarterback like a Peyton Manning or even a guy like a Rodgers or a Drew Brees where so much of what they're doing offensively is stuff that's being called at the line of scrimmage anyway. The big thing in this game for me is whether Julius Thomas plays and if he does how effective he is because you know how much Peyton Manning relies on him as a check down option. He has got to be active and got to be helpful in that offense. That's To me, that's that's the big thing. Yeah, still, I mean, they do have the three receivers. Uh, it's still a lot to handle. It's just a different element, of course, with the tight end and different matchups. But, uh, you know, this is a San Diego team that, uh, you know, went to overtime in Washington last week and showed that they couldn't get a half a yard again. And that's not the first time this year where that, a situation like that has come up for the Bolts. And it's got to be demoralizing when you get to a point where, you know, Danny Woodhead gets to, you know, originally has a – his dive to the pylon called a touchdown and then it's reversed and then a couple shots from the uh, half yard line and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and throw the ball out of a shotgun formation twice. And then you end up giving up the game winning touchdown to a converted linebacker who's now playing fullback. Yeah, well, it made me super pumped as an Alfred Morris fantasy owner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Second game this year where another Redskins back has three touchdowns. Amazing. Speaking of uh, of games that you, you kind of look at it on paper and you're kind of confused. Uh, Cowboys plus seven at New Orleans, possibly with no Moco again for uh, New Orleans. Yeah, I don't really think that the lack of, you know, Colston is really <laughs> going to kill that offense. It seems more like uh, whatever they can get out of Jimmy Graham is far more important these days as he's the guy that's going to be able to take up the middle of the field and, you know, run all those routes that require a big body receiver, except he's just a better athlete to do it right now. And, I mean, Col Colston has looked just so amazingly slow, at least to the naked eye, to my untrained eye. But they've always been an offense where the ball's going to get spread around and, you know, whether it's Kenny Stills getting three catches for 129 yards like he did a couple weeks ago, or whether it's Robert Meacham or Devery Henderson or Lance Moore 
or any of those receivers that have been through there. It, it's more about the guy running the show and, and being able to take advantage of the matchups that he has. Uh, you know, we didn't even mention Darren Sproles, who, you know, has just been, I think, uh, one of the most hated fantasy players this year. Uh, yeah, so is Colson. That's why I bring him up. But I don't understand why people hate Sproles every year. It's like, unless you're in a PPR league, what are you counting on him for? Sporadic touches? Let me let me also say, too, I, and I, I realize we're kind of getting toward the end of the show, but I wanted to say I watched the ESPN Fantasy Football Show for the first time ever this past Sunday, and I was amazed by the sheer volume of stuff they got wrong. Like, they, they were talking about how uh, Jordan Cameron was a number two tight end. He caught one ball for four yards. They were talking about how, you know, Ray Rice was a clear top ten running back. 17 yards. I mean, seriously, it's it's amazing people who are paid to do this, even they can't get it right. Well, I mean, it's a it's a, a very inexact science. I mean, it's, it's sports' own version of the stock market, so to speak, and that's not getting into any of that fan tech stuff that's been going on lately. But, you know, you're trying to predict how a guy is going to, going to perform, you know, without all of the information <laughs> that really should be out there. I mean, you don't know how much coaches plan – to use them you don't know how healthy they necessarily are yet it's so interesting when you know one of the a couple of the leagues that we play in together on yahoo when you go to your team page and you see that little yellow post-it note you know with the red dot saying that there's new news and you click on it and you have someone who is writing so sure of themselves about how this person is a you know a high-end wide receiver two next week (laughs) yeah uh no, no disrespect to the beautiful and talented Jamie Sire, who's a friend of the program and is part of the ESPN program, but uh, it's it's a tough watch, particularly when you see what they really don't know. Well, I mean, just the, the fact that there are fantasy shows in general is kind of amusing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, very much so. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, probably on another show, because I, I want to get into that at some point. And I guess, <laughs> I, I hate to do this, but finally, the, uh, the Monday night game, Miami minus one at Tampa Bay. Even with all that's going on, I'm still going to take Miami because Tampa seems like they're just such a disaster. Yep, not close. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, the other thing I was going to say is that, uh, you know, I, if if you really need fantasy information, there's the, this thing called the Internet. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, and, uh, the series of tubes. And you could get through all of it a whole lot faster than a half hour. <laughs> oh, it's more than a half hour. They start on ESPN News and then go to ESPN2. It's like an hour and a half. Uh, but I'm saying you, you don't need 90 minutes. You can take less than 30. You can still get plenty of information. You can skim through a few things, maybe look at a couple people's ratings. And if you needed to know how inexact a science it is, just compare ESPN's ratings to Yahoo's ratings one week. Uh, yeah, that's that's you know, fair. Justin Blackman, number four wide receiver one week. And on ESPN, he was the number 19 receiver. Those people must be drunk. Oh, wait, too soon? Oh, Maybe. <laughs> Man, what a disaster. All about synergy. Yeah. So with that, that'll bring us to the close of the program for Sports Matters. If you're listening on the live side, we do have another program coming up after this. Stay around for it. If you're listening on the recorded side, you should be listening on the live side. There's no excuse for you not to be here. We can give our time every Tuesday. You can too. So this has been Sports Matters for November 5th, 2013. I won't insult you any further. For Ed Barnes, I'm Brian Wilmer, and uh, we'll see you back here next week, same time, same channel. And until we see you again, if your fantasy team's doing well, please keep your mouth shut about it. I no longer want to hear it. We'll see you next week. This has been Sports Matters.